The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads. Get off our man and cheap and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 576 with guest Seth Juarez, recorded live Tuesday, July 6th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who keeps missing Mondays because he never really learned how to fire a gun, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's .NET. It's good. It's all good. Hey, man. How are you? I'm good. I want to uh, just say for the record that this is the hottest day in New London. Nice. Since 1999 when it was 100 degrees. It's scorching here, too. This is, uh, I guess the global warming came back for the summer. I guess this doesn't matter too much when we're doing a show like a week beforehand, but let's yeah. just say last week it was hot. I'm sure it was where you are, too. Let's get into Better Know Framework. All right. You know, people talk about global warming and stuff, global warming, global... They don't realize that last year was really cool. There you go. So it's more like weather extremism more than global warming. But anyway. So today I'm going to talk about uh, something in the uh, MVC framework. Really? System.web dot mvc dot i controller factory okay and this uh defines uh, uh, uh an interface for creating your own controllers what's good about that is that you can uh new up uh controllers that use various dependency injection and inversion of control containers all right to uh use things like castle windsor or spring.net or whatever you want in your controllers uh just make you know write a little factory and boom there you go I like making controllers when I'm working in MVC. Yeah, pretty simple. Create yeah. controller and release controller. That's about it. But, you know, every little detail helps. Yeah, this is all part of what makes this framework make sense, is that we're able to do these things. 
Yeah, and you know, some of the things in MVC can be used in web forms as well. It's not necessarily they're they're just good ideas, whether no matter what you're using. Hey, Richard, who's yakking at us? I got a good one too. A little callback to Norway. Norway. Hi, Carl and Richard. Thanks for a great show. And if it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't have gone to NDC 2010. Cool. Wow, that was one good conference. Obviously made all the better by Carl's great pre-party guitar gig. Oh, that was fun, wasn't it? You did tear it up, my friend. I got to tell you. Yeah. You tore it up. That was fun. I would be interested in your views on the following. Over the years, we have seen the pendulum swing from developers just accessing database tables directly to hiding a lot of data crud behind stored procedures and then moving back away from this, especially with the uprising of ORMs of one kind or another. Ignoring querying performance, if your database may be accessed by more than just your application, for example, in ad hoc reporting, do you think there is a benefit to store procedures acting as an isolation layer so everybody has a consistent view of the data? For example, if a table consisted of tracking different types of time off for employees, someone not knowing the business rules and querying tables directly could get a different number for the get holiday store procedure than had been signed off by the business due to subtle differences in the way the calculation is done. Hoping you'll visit the UK soon. All the best, Miles Dennis. So Miles went to Norway from the UK to come see you, Mr. Franklin. Well, I'm sure he came to the conference to see more than me play guitar. <laughs> it was a, a great conference. We had a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. And we did all kinds of crazy things there, actually. I did a good session, and you played, and we did 64-bit question. This time, I didn't take a $200 cab ride, though. By the way, Norway, very expensive from an American point of view. Yeah. It's like well, six to one. a $25 train ride instead, right? Yeah, you take the train, and it goes so fast, you don't realize how far you're traveling, and you're like, I'll just take a cab back. Yeah, $200 later... Don't do that. Don't do that. All right. Pine of Guinness, 15 bucks. Now, look. I'm just saying. Let's answer the question. Do you want to answer the question? This is a good question. It is a good question. Uh, and, you know, you're talking about a particular kind of stored procedure here, Miles, too, because the, this is stored procedures that return data, and you could do that in views. There's lots of different ways to go about that. Uh, ad hoc reporting, always been a problem. The problem yep. here is ad hoc reporting, my friend, not your data access technology. Agreed. The two different issues entirely. And ad hoc reporting is just the real issue. You can protect people from getting wrong results. That's ultimately our job as data guys uh, to uh, make sure that you can't give wrong results out. So I would solve the ad hoc reporting problem. I don't think any one of those data access strategies is absolutely the correct one for everything. The real reason I use store procedures more than anything is so that I can change data structures under the hood without the application knowing. Because being a data guy... When I've had to move tables to other locations or federate across servers, store procedures extracts all that away. Views and can do the same thing. Absolutely, right? So there are different reasons to go about this, but I don't hate RRMs. I've seen great work done with it. I've also seen catastrophically bad work done with it. And uh, I don't have a problem with store procedures either. So none of them are bad. It's all a question of how well you apply it. And your real evil in that whole conversation was ad hoc reporting. And uh, what else do we have to say here before we introduce Seth? Yeah, uh, how about let's send the guy a mug because he asked a good question. Miles, a mug off to the UK for you. And if you want a mug, send us a great question, an idea for a show, concerns, flames. Tell us how good his, Carl's guitar playing is. Or how and bad. You can send that to Donna Rocks at franklins.net. Yeah, maybe we should mention uh, Infusion Development down in New York, our friends who have been uh, soliciting us for 
well, soliciting our listeners who want to change jobs and, and uh, jump on board. Many, many, many happy employees at Infusion. We just hired another one, which reminds me that they're always looking for good talent, especially in the SharePoint uh, arena. So if you want to make a, the jump to uh, work in a, in a really creative environment in New York City, actually they have offices in Toronto and in London and in Dubai also, so lots yes. of options. Just send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I'll hook you up with the right people. Awesome. Okay. Now I guess we get on to the content section of our show. Nice. In which uh, we introduce our guest, and today's guest is Seth Juarez. Seth is a software developer interested in artificial intelligence, specifically in the realm of machine learning. He's working on a .NET library meant to simplify the usage of common machine learning algorithms. Seth has a bachelor's degree in computer science from University of Las Vegas with a minor in mathematics, a master's degree from the University of Utah, and is continuing on to a PhD in the field of computer science. Welcome, Seth. Hey, how's it going? How are you? Great. Awake. Yeah. Me too. We had kind of a long weekend there, and so it's it's time for a Monday, Tuesday. Yeah, a one-two yeah. punch. Yeah. <laughs> I actually uh, went, being a Canadian, went down for July 4th. You guys go nuts. It's really something. We do go I nuts. Got, I got to yeah. tell you, you guys go nuts. Did Huckabee paint his face with an American flag this uh, year? No, he was too busy pouring tequila on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We made up, I think, four gallons of margaritas. Good lord! And they all went in a for at, at this party. It was it was quite an epic party, and I was on the grill. Shocking, I know. But, Everybody uh, knows margaritas is the national drink of San Diego. Yeah, oh, national drink of San Diego. That was good. Is the official drink of San Diego, I should say. <laughs> but yes, we've got to shake that off and get to work. Right. I'm trying. I'm trying. So I like artificial intelligence. I just keep finding artificial dumbness. <laughs> <laughs> what got you interested in machine learning to begin with? Well, I was uh, when I was doing my master's degree, I took a, a machine learning course, and it was just fascinating to me. I wrote my first algorithm that I remember. It was called K-means, and I watched the computer quote unquote think. And it freaked me out, even though I knew exactly what it was doing mathematically. It was kind of cool. Okay. So, yeah, I was expecting, you know, I was a, a kid and I was watching, you know, science fiction or Star Trek or something like that. But you actually got uh, got into it at school. What exactly about watching the machine think was going well, on? Did... What was what did you what were you doing there that you were watching the machine think? Well, I, it was just an assignment, and uh, K-means algorithm, what it does is it's a form of unsupervised learning that it just sort of groups things together, and, and it's a really simple algorithm. In fact, I, I implemented it very quickly, and it's just, all it does is it looks at points in space, and it sort of starts to group them. It says, yeah, these five go together, these five go together, these five go together, and it was just cool watching it go through the process of thinking about it. Even though I knew exactly what it was doing, it was still kind of... Creepy, you know, like it's that moment when it grouped something together that you hadn't seen. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it grouped them the way I thought. I mean, it wasn't doing anything extraordinary. It's just the fact that some machine was thinking like I would be. That kind of it, it creeped me out, and it got me excited about well, what else can a computer do? Now you were looking at points in space, but obviously the complexity in machine learning is the the subject matter, the data that it's sifting through the format or the metadata about that data 
And, you know, are there, do these algorithms take into account any sort of standardization of, uh, uh, of data or is it all just working with whatever is out there? Well, in order to get these, these things to work, we need to convert them directly into math. And that's the, the biggest problem. We need, we need to do vectors and we need to learn about distances between vectors and space. And the problem with that is that people get turned off by that. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to abstract the math out so that you can have simple POCO objects and you decorate them with features, which are the things that it learns from, and targets, which is the things that it learns. And you just sort of say, okay, these these uh, properties in my class are, are the features. This one's the one I want to learn. Mm. Send it off to the algorithm. And it uses, it uses reflection to sort of convert each class into its math, mathematical representation. And then from there, I just apply the standard machine learning algorithms. Now, you said something I, I don't want the listeners to get hung up on. Maybe you can clarify. So that you said you need to convert it to vectors and points in space. Is that... Does that work for all kinds of data, or are you are you were you looking specifically at astronomical data? Um, uh, no, and so so the way these it's kind of weird. But imagine you have like for example uh, a string that's part of your Poco object, mm-hmm. and it turns out that for some reason you know that the length of that string really affects the outcome of the of the machine learning. What you can do is you can say, hey, look, I'm going to mark this as I want to learn from this, but then I want to also give it a function that converts that string to a double and say, hey, let's multiply the length of the string times four, and then all of a sudden that becomes a feature or sort of like an axis on an XY coordinate, Mm -hmm. but in multiple dimensions. And then it, it can just learn from that. All I'm doing is I'm converting simple types into doubles. So any kind of, any kind of data can be converted into uh, a double. Yeah, more more simple types like a string. I right. mean, there's there's a, the standard the length you can convert to a, a double representation. Right. Or for example, an enum already has built into it integers. Right. Zero, mm-hmm. one, two, three, four, five. I can mm-hmm. I can convert that. And then if you have some kind of uh, other type that you want to represent, then you can put it in there. And I'm working on getting it so you can provide your own function to convert that to a number. But all we got to do is you got to convert these things to numbers, and that's that's where the com- complexity lies. Because yeah, I got to think there's you're you're going to take an object now with a bunch of attributes, and you've got to render that down as a number. So yep. each of those attributes now has to have a weight in that number. And a simple serialization isn't going to do it because it really doesn't give you any anything meaningful. So, like Richard said, picking what it is that you want to categorize by or learn from, and those things have more weight than other things. Absolutely. That's going to so, be tricky. I mean, what you do is you make this kind of like a, a little model, and each of those little models, each class or each object that's instantiated from that class, you convert into a vector, and then you, you get a bunch of them. Because in order to learn correctly, you have to have a lot of examples. And once you give the computer examples, then it makes this matrix, and then it does all this other fancy stuff. But the general idea is that we, we need to get, I, I want to be able to, to have anybody do any kind of object that they feel this represents my data and I want to learn this target and then just give it tons of examples and let it come up with a way of categorizing things. Hmm. All right. I still feel too abstract. We need a solid example. Okay. So uh, uh, the example I did when I was at CodeStock, which by the way is fantastic, uh, fantastic conference. Michael Neal did a great job. 
the example is I had a bunch of student student objects, right? And each student had a grade that was an enum, A through F. And then it had a name, and then it had a number of friends, and then it had like its its grade point average and, and so forth. And what it did is it, it was going to learn a target, whether this person was nice or not. Nice or not? Yeah, it was a dumb example. You're just trying to keep it simple. Uh, yeah, no, but I think it's a great it concept because it's so vague. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, another example might be, for example, uh, say you have your list of customers in your CRM and you want to find out whether they're going to get behind on their payments, right? You have tons of examples of, in your database of people that do and people that don't. What you can do is you can create a view object for each of these people, right? And then you can pass it into the machine learning algorithm to predict if client new client X will be late on their payments or not. I mean, currently, all, all I have implemented is a binary classification algorithm, which it learned bools. So you give it a, a, an object with tons of properties, and you give it one bool, whatever it is you want to learn. You give, it, you give it a lot of examples, and then it comes up with a model that when you give it a new example, it fills in that Boolean for you. So that, that's kind of abstract, too. But think of any kind of yes-no question that you might have with a lot of data to back it up, you give it to these algorithms, and then it can learn, it can predict the future from the past. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. We've been blown away by the uptake and the quick adoption of Silverlight. It's no secret, though, that the platform didn't provide for consistent integration with the web analytics services. Well, not anymore. As you might have already heard, Microsoft announced its Silverlight analytics framework, which solves the above-mentioned problem, but... What's also interesting is that Telerik already provides support for the framework. Telerik's the first UI components vendor to offer handlers for the Silverlight Analytics framework. Using RAD controls for Silverlight, you can immediately benefit from the advantages of the platform and start tracking the statistics of your applications. You can read details and download the handlers at Telerik.com Silverlight. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. Now, what, it, what happens when you have all these complex types that have lots of, you know, lots of things that we need to learn from? That's, I, I imagine, where it gets very complex. It, it, it does, but only numerically. It doesn't get any more. So, so say, for example, you're learning, you're learning from two features, right? Okay. Uh, your, your grade, A through F, and your cumulative grade point average, right? And you're trying to learn whether someone's nice. Notice that's an X axis and a Y axis. And for each X and Y, you, you put a point, right? And all we're doing is the machine is learning a line to separate those that are nice and those that aren't. So that when it gets a new point, it knows which side of the line you're on. All right. That, right? Works, with, that works with two. Yeah, and so now imagine if we had a third feature like number of friends. Now we have an X Y Z. Okay. And now, now this is when it starts to get confusing, right? Because we for, are going to multiple dimensions here. So, yeah. So now we go into four and five, and it doesn't matter how many dimensions you go into, really, because the mathematics is built around vectors, right? right. And vectors can be arbitrary length, right? And so most people can probably imagine up to five dimensions at one time. Yeah. Once you get more than five, you start to get confused. And the standard five dimension is X, Y, Z, right? And then you have for each X, Y, Z, you have, for example, density. And then you can have that changing over time. And that's that's five dimensions. Yeah. But after that, I start to get confused. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
But you said the the vectors can be different lengths. So would you say that you could on the x axis have a, a a you know a a, a y intersection at a certain point on the x axis and then go out a little bit further and have another y intersection on the x axis? Right. So, so one of the problems with these, with with this particular model I implemented, is that it can only reliably separate things that are linearly separable. So, if you can picture in your mind, uh, say you slice an orange in half, right, or a grapefruit. Let's say something with a thick skin, right, a grapefruit. <laughs> Got to be a grapefruit. Notice that. Notice in the middle it's red, right, but on the outside it's white, right. That you cannot separate with a line. Hmm. You have to say, say, for example, you want to learn whether something was inside the grapefruit or outside the grapefruit, right? Notice that you can't learn it with a line. You'd have to have a circle. Yeah. And, and that's the problem with, with linear models. But there are such things as nonlinear models. So think of like a picture of a grapefruit and you grab it in the middle and you just sort of pull on it, right? So right. now it looks like a mountain, a red mountain with a, with a white ring at the bottom. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Just sort of pull it out. Now you can separate that with a plane, right? Because you can cut the mountain in half. Right. And that is also a linear model, but notice that we've transformed the original input space. Yeah. And so you, you can, there's all sorts of crazy things that are really easy to visualize, but they're mathematically hard to represent and, and compute. But why I, I really didn't want, I wanted people to be able to use these things. For example, you go, you go onto Amazon and it creeps you out with the suggestions it's giving you because it's like, hey, you bought this. You're also going to like this, this, and this. And you're like, whoa, how'd you know? Right. Right. It's as if Amazon is peering through your windows, looking at your books, knowing what you like and what you don't like. And they All are. it's really doing is it's classifying, do you like this or not? And then it's also grouping a, a, a bunch of books and saying, hey, the book you just bought belongs to this group. Will they like this one too? Yes or no? And then they suggest it. I always thought it was based on what other people buy that also buy your book, but I guess it has to start somewhere. They won't buy it if it's not suggested necessarily. That's right. And so, I mean, it can use a number of algorithms. Netflix uses algorithms like that. There's robotics, uh, makes decisions like that. And even though the, the linear models, which I'm suggesting are very simple, that it can only answer a yes, no question, notice that it's pretty powerful to be able to just learn from past data. Because it's really easy if you have two dimensions to learn something. But what if you have 15,000 dimensions? Then all of a sudden, it's kind of hard to parse through your data. Let's let the computer parse through it and let it learn for us. There's some applications of machine learning that go into the 20, 30,000 as far as how many, how many uh, features they have to represent. It's very large, and these things start to become intractable. Now, are there any other models that don't rely on dimensions for separation of, uh, of attributes? Yeah, there there are nonlinear models, uh, something called kernel learning uh, or support vector machines, which actually learn a boundary, right? And that boundary is not necessarily linear. But if you're learning a, a binary classifier, which we're talking about, notice the answer is only going to be yes and no. All right. Right? So, so a, a support vector machine, what it does is it finds the boundary points, right? And then it says, okay, along this boundary, anything inside or below it, that's going to be classified as, for example, true. Anything on the other side is going to be classified as false. These models are much more powerful because you can learn things that are nonlinear, right? You don't have to separate it with a line. You can separate it with whatever the thing, whatever it learns. But in order to come up with these things, you have to do, you have to use a multivariate calculus and you have to use Lagrange multipliers to simplify these things. And sometimes you can't even simplify them. Mm. So you have to do some kind of optimization algorithm to do them. So just saying this, a lot of people probably fell asleep or got upset 
I don't want people to have to think about that. I just want them to make their little objects, pass it into the algorithm, and then go ahead and let it learn the appropriate thing. And how far have you gotten on this tool? Well, so far, so far, I have uh, I have uh, the binary classifications all done for linear models, uh, and it seems to work. In fact, there was someone that emailed me about two days after the show that learned some that had the computer learn some very very interesting things, very powerful things. And I said, "Oh, how did you do that?" And then he explained it to me, and, and it, yeah, it made sense. And it had to do with learning about Im- learning from images. Okay, it was actually really quite cool. The, the, the there's tons of things that can be learned from it. Notice that even though the model is simple, it's still very powerful because it's going to give you some insight into your data. The question is, how did he distill the image down to uh, double? Oh, uh, he what he did is he looked at the the corners of the images and came up with a ratio of black uh, black to white, and then he passed those in. That's all. That's it. And it, he said it worked remarkably well. Just the ratio of black to white in an image. Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised at how little data you need to learn something useful. But just in the corner pixels? Yeah, I, I, something like that. I, he, he told me about it, and he said he only used four features, and it, it learned something pretty useful. All right, I'm creeped out. I, I thought it was pretty amazing myself. Yeah, I've just been creeped out right there. Got me. Like, I know. <laughs> it, it, what he told me about it, I said, whoa, that's creepy. Wait, no, I know how that works. I wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter. It's still creepy. Yeah, it is creepy. The recommendation engine, I think, is arguably the best example of machine learning most people see, but it still comes into this whole, uh, you know, it's the mass of data. I, I think the challenging one is is the weight that you know, there's obviously some books that are, you know, uh, absolutely apparent that if you like that book, you're going to love this book. And then it, it's when they get further afield that it gets harder. Right. But notice that each book is categorized. Right. Right. So so say, for example, uh, it, you can have a title, right? You can use the words in there as features, right? You can also have the categories. You can also have uh, other users uh sort of what they've purchased in that same category. And then all of a sudden your feature space can get really, really large. And once you have that much data, the computer is bound to learn something useful. Yeah. And so notice we've only talked about something called supervised learning. And a supervised learning, let let me back up and just tell you that all the machine learning, it kind of turns the whole writing software kind of upside down because we're used to, we're used to getting problems and solving them with algorithms, Right. Right. Now, now, machine learning is a little different. You give it a lot of data, and it learns the algorithm that you need. That's the, that's the big difference. We're no, we're no longer writing the algorithm. We're giving it data and letting it figure out what to do. Yeah. That's the biggest difference. And the first is, is a category is supervised learning, where you actually learn from examples. And this is what we've been talking about, where we have this feature space, right, with a, with a with a bunch of properties in a class, and then you have this target. In order for it to learn, you give it examples. You say, here's a student with a 3.5 GPA, grade of A, and they are certainly nice. And then you just, you just keep giving it examples like that, and then it learns the model. That's what we've been, we've been spending our time on now. Uh, the other one is called uh, unsupervised learning, where you just give it data and it learns something. And, and that's the more surprising one, I think. How does that even work? Because it sounds like now you're skipping the step where I sort of break down the things into numbers. Uh, well, you'd think that, but think about this. Uh, I implemented the, the k-means, right? 
And what it, once you have these things into a mathematical representation, you can start to look at distances between these things, right? So, so you have student A and student B. Once you convert these both of these students into vectors, you can calculate a distance. Mm-hmm. Kind of like if you have a vector x, y, right? Another vector uh, uh, z, w. You can calculate the distance between it. Right, you just yep. do some subtractions, and then you find the length and, and that kind of thing. So now, imagine being able to to do that and group students based upon nothing. Imagine having a group by and not having to put a parameter in there in a link query. That's what it does. It, it finds distances between each of these objects, and then it's able to tell you, okay, I want these belong in a group and these other other ones belong in a group without really having to tell it anything. Notice that what it's learned is it's learned the shape of your data. And that's what unsupervised learning does. It allows you to find the shape of your data. And that's actually very useful. It sounds like a great starting point when you're dealing with a really large mass of data. And then you'll end up getting more structured as you start focusing on what matters to you. Absolutely. Or, or the computer will tell you what, what, what the structure is, and then you can make better decisions on what to do with your data. And and this is where Carl checked out. <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting to the good part, man. I know. This is where it gets real creepy. You guys go right well, ahead. You're okay with this. I'm okay with this. I know that there are listeners out there who know what you're talking about. Well, I mean, the the the, the demo that I did at, at CodeStock, which which I put up, by the way, on, on the, the CodePlex site, which is machine.codeplex.com, it's, it's this whole student thing. And what it is, is it seriously, I said, okay, just group it into two groups or, or group it into three groups, and it automatically grouped the nice students and the non-nice students without me having to tell it anything. Huh. And that that was that was the 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 one of the parts of the demo that I think is really cool because people, I mean, I even get surprised when it does it, you know, because I wrote the demo the night before, and I'm I'm thinking, whoa, it works. Wait, of course it works. Uh, you know, <laughs> I wrote it. It must work. <laughs> Wait, I, no, not that I wrote it. It, it. The algorithm has been used for years. Like for example, the algorithm I'm using for supervised learning was mm-hmm. invented in the fifties. It's called the perceptron algorithm, and it's very old, and nobody uses it, and it's wow. very powerful. Yep. Or at least no, no one in our space. You said this before, that the, the algorithms are clearly defined here. It's just that nobody uses them. And here you are coming along and saying, okay, let's do this in .NET. You put it together. Oh, my God. Yes, it does work. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> And, and see, one of the this is kind of self-serving too. I'm, I'm a PhD student, and and uh, a PhD is like an online class for like eight years. It's, it's <laughs> I know you know what I'm talking about, right? And so I need I needed some motivation to continue my research, and currently I'm interested in feature representations to maximize learning. And the best way to get me to do it is to write something that people actually use and bug me. So instead of having my wife tell me to get it done, I can have a hundred other people, including my wife, developers (laughs) that are telling me to finish my work. I think it's a great idea. (laughs) Wow. This is like machine learning motivation. That's, that is right. No, I, I don't get me wrong. I love the stuff, but see, my problem is once I know how it's done, it's like, well, let's move on to the next thing and figure something new out. Right. Right. You just don't want to sit down and write it. You know, there's certain developers that are like that. You know, the one that figures it out and then they're bored for like the rest of the week. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the kind I am. And I don't, I don't mind writing the stuff. My favorite part is actually writing it, people submitting patches, 
people tell me, hey, why don't you do it like this? Hey, look, I had a success story. That motivates me a great deal because people are actually benefiting from these algorithms that are very powerful. Notice that if you were to to implement these things and get some some quote-unquote consultant to help you with that, they're going to charge you tons of money for this. Right. And, and notice that only the largest organizations use this kind of stuff. Uh, what I want is I want everybody to use this stuff because it's very powerful and it's very useful. So where do do you have uh, anything available now your your library? Yeah, it, it, yeah, if you go to machine.codeplex.com you'll be able to see that I I made some changes just this morning so that you can actually save these models and then load them up. So say you've spent say you've had this huge data set and you send it through the machine learning algorithm. These things these algorithms take a long time to actually go through all the data, but then they produce these really nice tight compact models. Today uh, last night I just finished uh, the ability to XML serialize out these models so that you can load them up into your program and just have it predict tons of things. So notice that you, you, you separate the learning process from the prediction process. The learning process, you let it just run forever for however long it takes. Then you save these models to XML. Then when you're at prediction time, you load up the XML, you make predictions. And that's... Uh, uh, the the theory that I had was that if I could if I could represent these things in an object oriented way and be able to save and load these things, then they should be easier to use. Now 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 what I need is just a lot of people using it to tell me whether it's true or not. Right, that makes sense. What kind of feedback have you gotten? Have you gotten anybody who's using it in a way you didn't expect? Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, this uh, this guy was doing it to predict uh, orientation of images. Right. And it was re- really, really cool. Uh, now, now what I, I just, I just, I'd like people to use it. Uh, currently, I have lots of unit tests that show you exactly how it works. I need to get in there and write some documentation. Uh, but the code as is right now with today's change set, you can pretty much learn a linear model right now. And, and uh, it's pretty powerful. I, I really do hope people use it uh, and send me feedback. When I get the feedback, that's what motivates me to, to get in there and fix it. For example, last night, somebody submitted, this morning, somebody submitted two patches, and I went ahead and put them in because they were really good ideas. Just simple things to add in there. Because one of the problems you get into here is trying to figure out what points of measure are relevant to a given results that you're looking for. Right. And, and uh, w- one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to build in there is some kind of extensibility. So say, for example, you, you know that the number of friends is a better predictor of whether you're nice or not. Right. Right. Uh, because that, That's a true statement. And, and notice that, that these algorithms don't take away from the fact that you have to know your data. Yeah. You've got to know what's indicative in your data. So, so when you have this, uh, attribute, you pretty much decorate the, the, the friends, which is a public int friends, right? Gets that. You decorate it with the attribute, uh, feature. You can also pass into the feature constructor, a static method that converts that particular number to a double. So say, for example, you, you, you know, this is more indicative of niceness or not. What you do is you make a static method in your class that converts the number of friends to the number of friends times four, right? Right. And notice that what you've done is you've amplified that one by a factor of four so that when the machine learning algorithm gets it, it 
yeah. puts that into the vector. Now, every time you see a friend, it's going to be friends times four, and that might actually uh, allow you to learn niceness a lot faster. And in this particular data set that I generated, it did. It, it grouped things better. It, it predicted things a lot more robustly. Uh, so you're able to extend uh, the framework by by passing in functions to convert each of your data types. Now, currently, the only data types that are supported are strings, enums, and any kind of number. Uh, complex types, uh, I have to build into that. Actually, now that I'm thinking online with you guys, I need to build in a method for you to, to have a property for any complex type, and then you can just go ahead and do your own conversion to a number if you so choose. Yeah, write your write your own algorithm to generate that number. That's right. But notice that all we're doing is we're converting objects to numbers. Then we get once we get these numbers, if you in your object you have 15 properties, notice now you have a vector that's of size 15. Then you give the machine uh, 100,000 examples. Now you have a matrix that is 15 wide, 100,000 long, right? And then it uses that to learn other things. I've worked with some folks that were doing neural networking to analyze. Yeah. Um, it was damaged bottles. They were manufacturing bottles, and they were using images of the bottles, just photographing the bottom of the bottle to figure out if it was a good bottle or not. And it was the the whole machine learning, so the, the neural net learning piece of this was that then they had a thousand different damaged bottles that they fed right. to it. And then it was able to find damaged bottles that they didn't even realize were damaged. That, that, and that's exactly, see, and that's exactly what, what mine does, except mine's a linear model. Neural nets are nonlinear models. They oh, okay. can learn, they, they're, they're, they find separators of data, but the separators are not necessarily lines. Now, I, I'm not necessarily a super huge big fan of neural nets because the, the mathematical complexity starts to get very large, nearing intractability. And so you have to be really careful with those kind of models because they're hard to solve. They're hard to generate models. It was very creepy in a sense that we didn't know what it knew that it decided that bottle was broken. Yeah, that's the scary part. See, see the way neural nets work is you have these inputs, just like we do now, where each, each, each spot in a vector has a number. Yeah. But those are fed into what are called hidden layers or hidden, hidden layers of the network that have some kind of activation function that will convert each part into another number. And then those feed into a, a third. This is a three-layer neural network convert into a final one. So notice that you have now, instead of learning one, one function, which is what we're learning, we're learning a line in the other one, it's learning three functions, two that are hidden. Right, and that's that's where the complexity starts to arise because then you really don't know what necessarily is going on. Uh, I, you know, if people want me to implement the things, I'd love to. I mean, help me learn them better. Uh, but not only that, maybe they'd actually be useful. But notice, once you start to get to more than four and five layers in a neural network, they're very difficult to learn. Uh, they're yeah. becoming they're very very hard to learn. I found that simple models actually do a lot do a lot. Why not use the simple thing first and then go with the more complex thing? That was part of the game we played was it started out as as a very high resolution image at the bottom of the of the uh, bottle and then as you turn the resolution down it kept working it just worked faster. Yeah. And see here's here's an example this might be a good time to to uh, tell you about unsupervised learning. Notice that when you have a big picture 
right? Yeah. The way you can represent that numerically is taking the RGB number for each pixel yep. and sort of strip and lining it all the way out, right? So notice you have the image. That dimensionality is going to be huge, right? Yeah. Part of what you can do is you can do something called unsupervised learning to learn the structure, right? Then once you learn the structure, you can do something called dimensionality reduction and then pass that into a supervised learning algorithm. So you're starting to compose these things. Right. Uh, an, an interesting uh, way to, to reduce dimensionality is by something called um, PCA, Principal Component Analysis, where you actually look at, and, and this, I don't want to scare anybody, but you, you, you look at That's the... That's all right, I'm already yeah, scared. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll scare you some more, Carl. It, you look at the Eigen system of, uh, of these examples, right? And all the Eigen system is, is it tells you what are the principal directions in these vectors. And then what you do is instead of, instead of looking at all the dimensions, you snap it to whatever number of dimensions you want. You've reduced dimensionality. Once you have this new representation for each picture, right, you pass that into a supervised learning. And notice that you've reduced dimensionality. You pass it in a supervised learning, and what you've done is you've effectively made a faster algorithm to learn something because you really don't have to look at all of the data in the picture, but only some. And there's mathematical models to tell you which are the important ones. Right. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Pareto's law seems to apply that you can reduce the data set down dramatically and there's a threshold where the error rate will abruptly jump, but just before that, it, it doesn't for the longest time. That, that is correct. But and so you got to you kind of got to fine tune these things. Uh, the the algorithms that I've done don't necessarily need fine tuning, but algorithms that I'll, I'll do in the future will. So, for example, there's another way to do supervised learning to, to learn yes no, called decision trees, where you make a, a tree, right? And you look at each feature and you say, okay, if it's less than this, then go down this branch. If it's greater than this, go down this branch. And then what you've learned is a decision tree, right? You get a new value, you say, okay, this one's less than this go down this branch, go down this branch, and then you go all the way to the bottom and say, okay, looks like this person is nice. But for that one, you need to give it hyperparameters, right? How right. deep do you want the tree to be? Uh, how, how is that going to be provided? How do I abstract that? Do I make the algorithm do all of the trees, uh, do a certain number of depth, and then just give you the best one? Or do I allow the user to pass in the depth of the tree? And those are some of the, the, the issues that I'm trying to resolve here, because there are certain models that require things called hyperparameters, which are parameters that you give it to learn better. Now, is, I mean, is the only condition here just performance, that it's the only reason you'd reduce the amount of data? Yes. And in fact, not just performance, but some of these things might not actually finish running. Right. Because we're getting into the MP stuff. Uh, we're getting into the whole question of P versus MP. Some of these algorithms are non-polynomially deterministic, which means they might not ever finish. Uh, you got to say that slower. Oh, non-polynomial <laughs> deterministic. 
Somebody wake up Carl. I think he's asleep. I'm so, I'm sorry. Did you say something? What? <laughs> I, I know. We all we've all taken the whole P versus MP, and then there's this like book. You remember you, you took this intractability class or uh, complexity class, the one everyone slept through, and like I'm never going to use this. We actually are starting to hit some of those barriers in machine learning. Right. It's. It, it, th- these things are not necessarily solvable. It's kind of like saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to decrypt RSA. I'm going to figure out RSA. Well, you, you kind of can't by definition unless P equals MP. There's certain algorithms that where you're, if your dimensionality is too large, you simply just can't do it. Yeah, it just goes away. It's just too many <laughs> possibilities. Yeah, well, well, not only that, it just it won't finish in, in, in a necessary... For example, uh, in, in practice, machine learning people, at least me, we really don't care how long it takes to generate the model. Right. As long as the model is consistent and it works. Yeah, and recognize right? that but, once the model's generated, things go along pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, because uh, these models are very compact. Uh, like I said, you can represent them in XML uh, for the linear models that I've been, that I've been working with. They're very small. And, and, and in fact, I, I, I serialize it in such a way that there's things that I serialize out that are not needed by the by the algorithm, but I wanted people to see what it is that it's doing. Right. Uh, and so it's more of a. I'm. I love being a teacher. It's one of my one of my passions, being a teacher. And so it's kind of cool, which is kind of odd, right? Because I'm teaching the computer how to learn, so right. it works out. But I also like people to know what the thing is doing. So, all right, we are off at an interesting place here. <laughs> yeah. That, that's good, right? I don't. Yeah, I don't want to go down the quantum side because that's cheating. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. That. Yeah. I. I always. I took that. Cl- I took part of that, and we studied them for like a week. And I thought, why are we studying this? We can't even do this. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. Other than the part where we can't actually build it, this is a great solution. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, you know, <laughs> if we had a machine that could do this, then we would be able to solve this. I'm like, well, we don't have that machine. Why worry about it? <laughs> How can you be a PhD student when you're still thinking engineering? I'm more of an engineer kind of guy, you know. The mathematicians have these weird paradoxes that they figure they can't solve. There's this one, you know, where you walk halfway to the door and you walk another halfway. And the mathematician will never get there. The engineer will say, you know, that's close enough. That's (laughs) that's where I'm at. (laughs) We're not. In fact, you look at the machine learning and the statistics people. They they get mad at each other because we use. We use uh, statistical models and probabilistic models in a way that probably makes them mad, but they work, right? So might as well. But like you say, it's they work because they're close enough. Yeah, they're, not they're close enough. That's right. And so uh, that, that's the. I'm more of an engineer, you know. If it works, that's good enough. That's what I'm telling you. A, a priori, these these linear models might not work on your data, but you could massage your data enough to where they do. Well, by that same token, you know, you're talking about weighting out the uh, the number of friends thing. You can put enough weight on number of friends where that's the only factor relevant in niceness. That's right. But you notice uh, something I didn't mention is you can actually learn infinite dimensional things as well using special tricks. Infinite dimensions? Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I just woke him up with that. Whoa. Yeah, I know. We're starting to get into like... Uh, Do you guys all Stargate smoke some stuff? sort of science crack that the rest of the world doesn't <laughs> know about? Or is it just that we're stupid? <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but if you look at it, if any of your listeners want to look, these are called kernel methods, and you can represent infinite dimensional things in a finite amount of space. It's kind of crazy. The first time I had this realization is when we were, we were talking about it to a student, my advisor and I, and we're trying to explain this, and I realized right there talking to him about it, 
holy cow, we can represent infinite dimensional things in a finite dimensional space. And that was totally like one of those aha moments I had. And I realized that I'm not going to have these aha moments unless I talk to people about this stuff and get them interested in it. And so, I mean, it, this might be self-serving, but I'm hoping that there's sort of like a, a mutual benefit for everyone. Well, absolutely. You, know, you got You said you, it's more exercising these things that's going to make the difference, right? The more data that we've got, correct. the better off we are. Yeah, and, and I encourage people to take a look at it. It's machine.codeplex.com. I, I'm thinking of switching over to uh, GitHub, but I, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not like one of those programmer hippies, you know, that... That like to use all the. I, I don't know how to use Git. I try. I, I I looked at TechPub series on it, and it scared me a little bit. And so I went to CodePlex just because it was easy and it's the first thing. But I'd love to learn all this other stuff. I I want it to be a good open source project that many people many people use and enjoy. Uh, and so I'm I'm happy to take feedback and and take a look at how to to do these things. I just released uh, some code that I think is very powerful, but maybe I need some help with structure. I'm happy to take any suggestions. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's an initial starting phase here, you know, a, 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 an add-in to Studio that helps with the code analysis to start you down the path. Hey, yeah, I, I would love to do that. Uh, there's imagine imagine having tooling that learns from what you're doing. Right. Uh, that's pretty powerful. Uh, we're getting in the realm of like crazy, you know. Uh, obviously, there's certain things that computers can never do, at least the way we've currently engineered them, right? Uh, so I, I'm not freaked out. If anyone's out there thinking that, that Seth is promoting like Skynet version 2, you know, and Terminator is going to come kill us all in 20 years. I, I, I don't think that's actually possible with these things. Uh but there are certain things that are very possible. Yeah. Just with a little bit of probability theory and linear algebra. Now you just tipped me onto an idea there. If I could actually watch the areas of your project that you're spending the most time in, if I could apply that apply those doubles to how much time you worked on a given chunk of code, that that creates its own sense of weight. I probably could point you to the code you're having the most problems with. Yeah. And possibly the ones that are the most relevant ultimately to how I would have, apply learning to it in the first place. Or, or maybe th think of this. Imagine uh, all of a sudden you're finding that you're spending that if you were to predict where in the code you're spending your time, it says right here, maybe you're looking at a maintainability issue. Maybe right. maybe the patterns and practices that are that should be followed are not being followed. Uh, and you, you've all of a sudden learned something about code itself. And I'm kind of currently thinking about how to actually do machine learning with the way you code. There might be, and this is, you know, I said there's supervised and unsupervised. Well, there's everything else, right? And th that's uh, something called structured prediction where you actually learn structures. Those are a little bit more complicated, but imagine being able to learn something about your code base. Yeah. As a manager, you'd be able to cause, imagine how could you possibly know anything about a hundred million lines of code? But, you know, we're starting to right. go down this path and we start looking at things like cyclomatic complexity and so forth. I've already talked to managers where they're using team system and saying, I can now tell when a guy's thrashing by his check in rate. You know, like there's right. already that sense of gestalt about their development team based on the numbers that they can see, if we could actually apply some machine learning theory to this, I think we'd pop it that much more strongly. Yeah, imagine imagine putting cyclomatic complexity and all the other all the other measures you have in your code 
Imagine all of a sudden putting that into some kind of representation and say, I don't know what I want to learn. Let's do some unsupervised learning and do some grouping. And all of a sudden, you're starting to learn where things are going. And then you can start to see trends in your data, right? Right. And then once you've grouped stuff, then, then maybe you can do some other kind of learning on top of it. But these things are very composable. In my in my opinion, you, you might also be able to use several different learning models and then have each one of them vote for what the right answer is, and that's kind of a form of, of neural networks. But w- but you're not you're already giving it specific functions in the hidden yeah. layers. You've already pointed that's in a particular direction. I keep having a vision of Clippy popping up in Visual Studio saying, "It looks like you're writing a bug." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we do have to have Clippy come back somehow. Yeah. You spent enough time in this method now that it's almost guaranteed to suck. Would you like me to make a a business bug or a personal bug? No, no, think about it. Actually, we we laugh about it, but how many metrics do we have in a function? There's cyclomatic complexity. What else is there? I'm trying to think. I'm drawing a blank. There's how many lines of code there are in the function, right? And, And what we can do is we can give it examples of... Here's uh, here's 10,000 examples where we've labeled cyclomatic complexity and lines of code to whether it sucks or not, right? Yeah, it's dependency levels. I mean, there's all kinds of good bits here. But it, I think more interesting, and this is, again, where you talk about what are machines good at versus people are good at. The machine is going to be very good at looking at how much time you spent tweak, twiddling that code, how many pieces right. you've rewritten, whether or not it's been refactored. Those sorts of real-time gatherings, this data that's sitting there that normally gets missed. It's one of the things I think you see showing up in, in pair programming is that your, your fellow programmer can see when you're struggling over a piece of code, something that normally right. never gets captured. So it's not only the finished code, and we can measure it that way, but also the process of creating it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, notice that you've just found a very specific application to a simple binary classifier. How many more applications could there be? And we're yeah. just thinking because our domain obviously is writing code. Yes. Imagine someone else, in a, if these things are explained properly, uh, imagine someone else saying, hey, yeah, I can I can use this to predict X or predict Y. All of a sudden, what, 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 I've, what we've done is we've commoditized these machine learning algorithms to where they've only really been in the academic world and applied at very large organizations. Now we've commoditized them in such a way that it's just everyone can use them and should. Yeah, I think that's what you're seeing is that there are very big organizations out there. And I'm looking at the the quantitative analysis side of finance these days as they are living and breathing this sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, the, it's important that the rest of us start using it in in larger ways. How many times do you get a call from your credit card company these days asking about a purchase? Imagine a startup just being able to uh, use these algorithms in a powerful way to really create a a, a, a novel and innovative product. That is why I st- I strapped on the MIT license on this code because I want everyone to use it and not right. have this. I, I'm not a fan of the GPL only because I. In our space, in .NET, we, we write these things commercially, and, and our, our employers don't want us to open source the code we're writing. The MIT license is, yeah, do whatever the heck you want, but just don't, don't sue me if something goes wrong, you know, pretty much. Well, yeah, GPL seems to be an impediment to adoption. And in the end, this code will thrive if it's adopted. So how do we avoid that impediment? Yeah, and, and that's why I put the MIT license on it, right? so that you can do whatever you want. And, and I'm happy to... I'm happy to help out. In fact, if you if you go to the 
to the site, you'll see, you'll, you'll, it'll, there'll be a link to my blog where I'm, I'm trying to, to write some stuff to help simplify these things. And then also my email address, I'm happy to, to respond to emails. Well, I almost, I don't want to break you guys up because, uh, but we're almost out of time. This is, uh, I, I tell you, it blows my mind. I'm, I was never as much of a math head to be able to, because I, you know, I try to conceive things and conceptually without, uh, you know, without that solid math background, it just sort of falls apart. So, and that's okay, Carl. I want you to download it and try it out. You'll see, you don't have to know any math. You just have to know how to write code, and you, I'm sure you do. Well, yeah, I do, and and that is the saving grace of what you're what you're doing. I'm going to definitely check it out. The project is machine.codeplex.com, and the brilliance is Seth Warren. Semi. Thanks so much. Thank you, Seth. Have a nice day. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a. Uh...